0: Marvin Goldfried is a distinguished professor of psychology at Stony Brook University, where he helped develop the graduate program in clinical psychology. He's the co-founder of the Society for the Exploration of Psychotherapy Integration. Alan Francis is a professor of psychiatry and chair emeritus at Duke and was chair of the DSM-IV task force. Marvin describes the evolution of his psychotherapy orientation as psychodynamic, behavioral, CBT and eventually integrative. He practices, teaches, and supervises what works clinically using direct and indirect evidence base. Allen describes his approach to psychotherapy as whatever works or no one size fits all. He was trained and taught at the Columbia University Psychoanalytic Center, but remains equally interested in brief, supportive, cognitive, behavioral, interpersonal, and family therapies. Please enjoy this week's episode.
1: Good morning, and welcome to Talking Therapy with Marvin Goldfried and Alan Francis. Good morning, Alan. Hey, Marvin. So today we're going to talk about uh, making therapy last. And you know, as I was thinking about the topic, I immediately thought of Freud's paper, "Analysis, Terminable and Interminable," and he touched on this. It was—it's an interesting paper uh, if you haven't read it lately, because he. Talks about a number of different things, and um, he speculated about how to make therapy last, and and um, should therapy uh, include future potential issues that are dealt with as a preventative. And uh, he, I don't recall him ever coming up with a conclusion, but at least he was speculating on on the lasting quality of therapy, and. Uh, There was one colleague of mine, uh, Alan Marlatt. I don't know if you know him. Mm -hmm. He had a a brilliant guy, did work in addictions, very offbeat uh, into Buddhism and things like that, a CBT therapist, a very early one, unfortunate uh, early death. And he uh, worked with people who were addictive and knew that, that there was high likelihood of relapse. So he developed a uh, concept and, a, and, uh, and techniques which he called relapse prevention. And what it involved was after you've dealt with the therapy or you've dealt with the person's issues and you're getting ready to terminate, you don't terminate. But what you do is you then anticipate the kinds of triggers or situations that are going to push the patient's button to get them to possibly relapse into addiction or drinking, say. Things like uh, interpersonal conflict or pressures from peers. Oh, come on, just have one. Or this is a celebration, make an exception. And he would uh, elicit potential triggers during the course of therapy. And then they would anticipate them and talk about how to deal with them emotionally, cognitively, and behaviorally. And they would rehearse responses and found that this increased the likelihood that the therapy would stick.
2: Interesting. Yeah, I've always felt that this was a really major contribution to psychotherapy, that um, psychotherapy takes longer than just giving a pill it should have more enduring effects. It shouldn't, for most people, last a lifetime. There are some people who need supportive therapy for a lifetime, but they're a small minority. So the assumption should be with every patient except the small minority of people who have really severe mental illness that may require lifelong attention. Mm -hmm. The presumption should always be this therapy is gonna have an ending. But you don't want the therapy to have an ending and then have all the problems recur again. It should have an effect not only in dealing with the problems that were the immediate cause of the patient coming in, but also other accessory problems that have been unearthed during the uh, treatment. And it's absolutely brilliant, and I think should be standard practice with every termination to be thinking into the future, what have we learned here? What are the likely situations in the future where what we've learned here will be important? Mm -hmm. And care for that future so that it won't be a surprise to you and you'll be well-equipped to handle the the, the slings and arrows that are part of everyday life for everyone, that the material here, what we've gained, shouldn't just be usable for what you've already experienced. It should be usable for what you're likely to experience in the future.
1: Yeah, and sometimes it may generalize to other areas, but sometimes it, it might not. I have found clinically that issues in a work situation don't all that get resolved don't always general, generalize to interpersonal issues in a person's uh, in, uh, the more intimate life for for whatever reason we could speculate as to as to
2: why not. I, I think also that this work of relapse prevention is very useful in increasing the resilience of, of people. It it points out together that you're not gonna have an easy life after this. It's not that you've been in therapy and you're doing fine now and everything's likely to be smooth sailing. Everyone has troubles, normalizes the fact that there'll be troubles in the future. Yeah, And, and it makes very clear that the therapy is not, one of the things that I found to be the, the, the most seductive and dangerous in, in doing therapy was having great sessions that wound up to be built on, on uh, Sand, on, on, on ocean sands that would be wiped out. A lot of patients allow you to feel a false sense of comfort because the sessions are going very well without those sessions having much of an impact on their life. And I think it's crucially important throughout the treatment to constantly be tying what's going on in the session with what's going on in the person's real life and the the logical conclusion of that is that the end of treatment the effort has to be made on both people's part to tie what's happened in the sessions so far with what's likely to happen in the person's future life.
1: Well let me ask you a question and, uh, and you have much more contact with a psychodynamic therapist than I do. I do have a fair amount but still is it your sense that that there's still the remnant idea that if you identify the conflict and the person becomes aware of it, then voila change occurs or is there a learning process? you know an after education or a reparenting and reparenting or after education, which I believe is a psycho comes from the psychodynamic community, um, takes time and it's not the resolution or an insight.
2: Well, Freud was very clear in that in the paper analysis in Terminable and Interminable, which I think was close to his last paper, uh, 1937. He was very clear that you couldn't anticipate all future conflicts and that you had to be modest enough to realize that any given treatment was not meant to perfect the individual, but just help them with, with the conflicts that they were aware of and could be dealt with now. I think what happened, a dangerous element in psychoanalysis was the idea that you could perfect the patient by very long treatments. And the uh, same trend to some degree began happening in cognitive therapy. Originally, the cognitive therapies were fairly short term. And in some people's hands, the cognitive therapies began to extend out longer, 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 one year, two years, three years. I think it's important with every treatment to to make people aware of the fact that there will be an ending and that everything that happens in the sessions needs to be translated to what happens outside the sessions. In the hands of some psychoanalysts, the patient maintains so much control of what happens in the sessions that they can spin a web of of, um, debate, interesting debate for years and years and years without applying anything that they've learned about themselves Mm. to how they're really behaving in in the outside world. So I I think that the, the tendency amongst psychodynamic therapists, some of them, and an increasing tendency amongst some cognitive therapists is not to be engaged enough with the interface between the session and behavior outside the session. And the, again, the logical conclusion that the end of treatment, it's not just separating from each other. The focus isn't just on how much we're going to miss each other, how much we're going to miss the um, the work together. It needs to be that this work had a purpose, not just to dealt with the problems you came with, but to help you with the future. Well, let me, you know, as, as you're saying this, well, a couple
1: of things are happening in my head. One, I'm thinking about there's a mirror image among some CBT therapists. And what I mean by that is, yes, the focus is on what is going on between sessions to the point of ignoring what is going on within the session. Hmm. So it's exactly the flip of, um, you know, it's the unassertive person who is very careful in what, they say to the therapist, because they were, they, were, they were afraid of a negative reaction. And the therapist paying no attention to that but talking about, well, let's talk about what happened last week and, and what's gonna happen next week. But I,
2: so that's one thought and it's a bit tangential,
1: but I figured.
2: No, I love that point. I love the idea of the mirror image that the psychodynamic therapist focuses too much on just what happens in the session to the exclusion of what's happening outside. And some CBT therapists focus too much just on what's happening outside, failing to take advantage of the informational value and also of the power of the therapeutic relationship to have the inside influence the outside.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, and I I see this occur, it has occurred quite a bit among beginning CBT therapists where I would ask the question, um, well, are there any other significant people in this patient's life besides their partner? And the therapist said, "No, I don't think so." I said, "Really? What about you?" And they don't see themselves as being part of it. But that's that's another another issue. I don't. I'm glad you like it, but it's a, it's a tangent. And I think maybe unconsciously I brought it up because I thought you would like it. <laughs> but. To, to the point, the question, the other thought that I had is as you, as you were talking about uh, uh, how long the therapy goes on and, and the issues that are dealt with, the concept of working through is that only for grieving or is it a more generic concept that, that deals with other issues
2: in a patient's life? You're asking me? Yeah. I think it depends on the patient a lot. I mean, we've discussed- oh, what does working through mean? It, 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 you discuss the fact that some people just get it. Uh, and you know, We've discussed the fact that sometimes something you do in 15 minutes, you say something, the person just gets it, yeah. and they work it through on their own. The, the, the getting it means, aha, what you said here applies in these other places in my life, yeah. and they take the ball and run with it. For some people, and, and maybe most people, it, there is not this one aha moment where... I get it, and my whole life has changed. With with most people, it requires practice, homework, thinking it over many situations, a variety of incremental corrective emotional experiences. And the the um the initial insight is, is cures only ignorance, that it has to be applied in a variety of different circumstances before it changes who they are, before they have a so essentially that's a learning model. Yeah. At least in, in a very generic sense, it takes time. Of people learning on their own. Once they get the idea, they carry okay. it on their own. Other people may take years of doing this very patiently in sessions and then relating it to out of session and taking out of session behavior and relating it to in session behavior. It's a much slower process. But okay. I think the, the dilemma that Freud was addressing in analysis terminal and interminable and which is a problem in many cognitive therapies now, is that that working through can become endless if there isn't some sense of urgency that life has to change now. Yeah, yeah. Not in a debating society. We're not playing here, play acting here, not just having fun together in the room, that the working through has to take place, not just in the sessions, but outside the sessions. And there should be a dramatic change in, Feelings, thoughts, and behaviors in everyday life, not just good sessions.
1: Well, that brings me to the topic of, of uh, termination, which we've dealt with, but uh, I think we can deal with it in another way, and that's the notion of maintenance. Now, with drug therapy, that's a concept, right? The person, the patient is on maintenance. What does that mean if somebody's getting meds and they're
2: on Termination maintenance? versus maintenance? Yeah. Well, I think that with with people who have severe psychiatric disorder, um, very often they may need to be on medication for life, and they may also need to have some form of psychotherapy for life. It's certainly not going to be as intense as psychotherapy aimed at change. It might be as little as once a month, once every three months. Mm -hmm. But it's important people don't just stop having problems if they start with severe psychiatric illness. Right. It's important to treat people with severe chronic illnesses, problems, with, with treatments that pay attention to the relationship and the needs of support over a support education, crisis intervention over a long period of time. But that's the minority of people who are seeing psychotherapists. Most people seeing psychotherapists should be able to terminate. Be clear from the beginning of treatment it's not meant to be an endless relationship. Let me tell
1: you that that I see how during my practice, which is much less now than it used to be, um, I have been seeing very high-functioning people. Uh, so, And yet, I would not just terminate. I would talk about a maintenance phase with them where we would cut the frequency of sessions to every other week, every few weeks, once a month, a couple of once every two months and things like that. And the the stance that I would take would be different in the maintenance phase. And basically what I would say is if during the interval that we're not seeing each other, you have a problem, try to handle it on your own rather than call me. If that doesn't work, try again. And if that doesn't work try a third time and after three trials give me a call and we'll set up a session so the emphasis is very very clear they need to become
2: their own therapist that's perfect It's exactly what i did i think it's um we've ignored the withdrawal effects of psychiatric medications for too long and only recently are people becoming aware of the fact that you can't just stop a psychiatric medication The same is true of psychotherapy, that unless it's a preordained brief treatment with a number of session deadline agreed upon in advance by both, and even then, the number of sessions can be spread out towards the end, that for most people, there's a withdrawal effect from leaving psychotherapy. And it's very important to give people a chance to integrate what's happened in the sessions on their own, to meet challenges. they would meet them without you, you at their elbow. And to withdraw therapy too abruptly, mm-hmm. to not give people a chance to practice on their own is to really take away one of the real tools of psychotherapy to help them see once they've struggled with problems, ways they might've done it differently, but more and more the responsibility for change is on the patient, less and less is it on the sessions. Yeah. And I think that that should be the stance starting
1: with session one. With, the the expectation, I'm a part of the patient, is that you're gonna help them to learn to deal with their own life problems, as opposed to, you know, you've got the problem, I'm gonna fix you. And I think that that should run through all the therapy, at least, and I see this as part of the history unfortunately, the forgotten history of CBT, where we were criticized for manipulating and being Machiavellian. Uh, And then we started to talk about, well, we're teaching the patient to have control, self-control over their life. Um, And then we didn't like the term self-control, so we changed it to coping skills. So to view therapy as coping skills, you are helping and facilitating the learning process of self-therapy.
2: And I think I think it's a wonderful suggestion you're making that this be part of the initial therapy contract. And and also the therapy practice. Yeah. So from the very start, the person knows that the, the expectation is they carry what happens in the sessions into the real world with increasing and new maybe sometimes new coping skills. And that, that towards the end of the treatment, they'll need less of support and teaching and corrective emotional experience in the sessions, that they'll do more and more of this on their own and that the visits can therefore, and should therefore be spaced out. Right. Right. And there are lots and lots of different ways in which
1: this can impact on how you do the therapy during the main course of therapy. So for example, I recall a patient came in and she was very, very stressed out because she was, Uh, late, the subway apparently was running slow or something like that. And she came and she was like, I'm so stressed and, and I just don't know what to do. And I said, oh, so there's nothing you can do when you're stressed. No, no, I'm just, you know, need you to know that. She had learned how to use slow deep breathing to reduce her anxiety, but she was not doing that in the session because she was too much focused on her stress level and not stepping back and recognizing metacognitively, oh, I'm stressed, therefore I can do something about it. And my temptation was, should I tell her or should I not tell her? Why don't you do slow breathing? And I had to tell her because she wouldn't have gotten it otherwise. But in other situations, I don't tell the person, I may hint, I say, so there's nothing you know how to do to reduce your level of stress? And they say, oh, of course. So depending upon how adept the person is and how experienced the person is in learning to be their own therapist, you may need to guide and prompt them in the earlier stages, but then back off Mm -hmm. later on. Mm -hmm. And that's the same philosophy as uh, as, uh, phasing out the number of sessions or the frequency of sessions
2: rather. I think part of the phasing out process or another way of putting it is phasing the patient in as the major actor and phasing uh-huh. them out as the major actor. I think the use of telephones and you know, more recently texts, very, very important in this period, that very brief phone calls, sometimes just a few words in a text can make a world of difference in, in helping someone feel that you're still with them Um, give them a sense of a reminder of the things they've learned, uh, a sense of support, uh, not being completely on their own. And it can can require very little time on the part of the therapist.
1: Right. No, I I think it's the whole notion of fading out rather than terminating. And I think that's that's basically what we're talking about. And what I I can just add of, of the way I view these maintenance therapy sessions, we talk about Let's talk about how you coped on your own in a different way than you did prior to therapy for any events that occurred over the past month. And then, because they want to come in really and talk about the difficulties they've had. I said, that's good. We'll do that. But let's start with how you coped and specifically how you were able to do it. And then let's talk about the more difficult situations where it was harder to cope and figure out why it was harder to cope so that you can learn from that for the next interval. So I I think we need to, and that's just, you know, one little tidbit of, of what one could do during maintenance therapy, but I think there needs to be more emphasis on maintenance therapy and there needs to be research on this. Because look at clinical trials. The vast majority of them have pre-test and post-test. So it's like, how do you feel now that therapy's over, even though we had a session last week? So there's no emphasis on whether the therapy is lasting
2: unless you do a follow-up,
1: which is not always
2: easy to do. Yeah, I I think that you could say that the most important parts of a treatment are the very beginning and the very end. The very beginning shapes what's going to happen after. The very end shapes how much the therapy will become an enduring part of the patient's future. And I think training programs focus a lot at the be, about the beginning of treatment, but almost never focus on the end. Very often, people in training have not had the experience of of, of terminating with many of the patients that they've been seeing, except in a very abrupt way, force patients often trigger it, or the end of the program triggers it. It's not part, an inherent part of the training. It's one of the reasons why I think training in brief therapy is so important, because if you have t- a, a, a predetermined time limit to the treatment, it helps therapists learn how to handle both the beginning and the end, and the stuff that happens in the middle.
1: Yeah. Who is it who said that that therapy was like a chess game? Where you know the opening and closing moves, but the middle part is hard to... But the
2: most important, and we don't really teach closing moves very well. That's why I'm, I'm so glad you came up with this topic for today.
1: Okay, so we're going to have to figure out <clears throat> a topic for next time.
2: Okay, well, you're great at that, Marvin. I'll leave well, it up to
1: okay. you. Okay, and, and you're very open to suggestions which is you know why I like it, you you agree with me a lot you must be a good therapist <laughs> okay stay safe okay. Talk to you next time bye bye bye